0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, in the fourth chapter and the thirtieth verse. The thirtieth verse in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. We come in our systematic study of this great epistle, and at the moment of this fourth chapter, to this uh, arresting, striking and amazing statement, which the apostle here, as it were, hurls into the midst of a series of practical injunctions and exhortations. And surely as we come across this verse, and thus find ourselves confronted by it, there must be many things which come immediately into our minds. The first is that there is nothing perhaps which is quite uh, so characteristic of the method of this great man of God, the Apostle Paul, as the way in which he does this very thing that he does in this verse. Though he has an obvious division of his matter in this epistle as in every other, in which he uh, deals with his doctrines in the first half, and then goes on to the practical application, he is never a slave to method. And thus you find him in the practical section. And as he is actually dealing, as I say, with specific, particular matters in a thoroughly practical and pastoral manner, he suddenly hurls in a mighty statement like this, which again brings us face to face with one of the great, central, pivotal doctrines of our Christian faith and profession. Now, therein, and by doing that, as I want to try to show you, the apostle really does show us not only his own method, but teaches us certain profound truths about the whole of our Christian life and department. Very well, as we look at this statement, there are some two or three general remarks which it seems to me, at any rate, are called for. The first is the question of the connection of this particular statement. And here there is disagreement, not serious of course, because in the last analysis it doesn't matter. There are those who say that this statement rarely comes as a kind of climax to what he's already been saying, that uh, having told us not to lie and not to be angry in a wrong sense and having told us not to steal anymore and not to allow any corrupt communication to proceed out of our mouth, he says in effect, don't do anything like that. Because to do any one of those things is to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And of course it's perfectly true. But I think it's equally true to say that the apostle had in his mind when he penned these words what was also to follow. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. In my analysis, which I put before you when we were dealing with the 17th verse, I suggested that, in my opinion, this 30th verse is more an introduction to that which is to come, rather than a kind of summing up and enforcing of that which has gone before. I I say all this merely for the sake of the orderliness and the tidiness of our minds and our thinking. The more tidy our minds are, as we read the scriptures, the better Christians we shall be. But undoubtedly, as I say, this uh, statement covers both the preceding exhortations and injunctions and also those which follow. It comes here as a kind of center, a focus of all that is said in the particularities. The second remark I would make is this, that in, in this verse, we have what we may very well describe as the differentia, the differentia of Christian ethics. Now, what I mean by that is this, we have here what really makes Christian ethics what it is and differentiates it from every other kind of moral or ethical system. There is no other kind of moral ethical teaching which ever makes this kind of statement. This is the peculiar thing about Christianity. All the others will tell you not to lie, they'll tell you always to speak the truth, they'll tell you not to lose your temper, but always to be controlled and disciplined. They'll tell you not to steal. They'll tell you not to use bad language or any kind of corrupt communication and to be kind and good and helpful and philanthropic. They do all that. But what they never do is this. Never in their systems do you find this. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Never. This is, I say, the peculiar thing, the differential. The thing that marks it off separates it from everything else, and that is important, of course, in this way, that unless our conception of the Christian life and of Christian living and of conduct and of behavior includes this, is based upon this, and always leads us to this, it is not truly Christian. Good conduct is not of necessity Christian. And this is a tragic fact in the life and history of the Church, as we all know so well, that so often morality is taken for Christianity, a morality which uses Christian terminology. But this is the test. Is the whole of our life centered around a truth like this? Is this at the very heart of our whole outlook upon conduct and behavior, and at the very heart of our practice. Uh, Let me therefore put all this uh, still further in a third uh, general point, uh, which is this. That in this verse, in this statement, we have what we may well describe as the very heart and nerve and center of the biblical doctrine of sanctification. Now, this is the biblical doctrine of sanctification. Indeed, this is always the New Testament way of teaching that doctrine and of presenting that doctrine. And uh, you notice uh, the way that it does so. It's an appeal. Yes, but you notice the kind and the type of appeal that it is. You notice how the Apostle Paul c- commends this particular type of conduct. You notice his reason for telling them to put off the old men and to put on the new and to stop doing those various things which he's been mentioning. You notice the nature of his appeal. Well, what is it? Well, negatively, let me point out that he's not merely appealing to them to conform to a law or to live in conformity with a particular code, a moral code or a code of ethics. That isn't his appeal at all. He doesn't mention it. It's not on a legal level. It's not merely to keep up to a certain standard. Standards are all right, but that isn't a peculiarly Christian thing. Uh, Still more important is it to observe this. He doesn't appeal to us to refrain from doing all these things for our own benefit. Now, here is a very important point, surely. Because certain popular prevailing schools of teaching and of thought with regard to sanctification invariably put it in terms of us. They come to us and say, now, are you having any trouble in your life? Are you being got up by a particular sin? Are, are, are you being defeated? Are you constantly going down to a particular matter? If so, they say, come to us. Here, come to the clinic, and we'll help you to deal with that particular sin that's getting you down. Not a word of that here. That's not the biblical way of presenting sanctification. It doesn't start with us. It isn't in terms of us. It doesn't say, now if you want to live a victorious life and to be really happy and to have great enjoyment and wonderful experiences, stop doing those Not at all. No, no. This is the way. Why mustn't I do those things? Well, of course they're bad for me. And of course... As I'm going to show, they will affect my experience, but that isn't the first thing. And you and I, my friends, betray our lack of understanding of biblical doctrine by the things we put first. It's the thing a man puts first that really tells you where he is. What's his foundation? Well, now then, here it is. It is his glory. That's why I mustn't do certain things. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Here's the Christian way, here's the biblical way of looking at this whole matter of sanctification. Not for ourselves, but for his sake. Our sanctification, our life, our conduct is ever to be the realization and the outcome and the outworking of what he has done for us and of our sense of his glory and our desire to live to the praise of the glory of his grace. Very well, there are our general remarks. Now, then, the doctrine taught, I say, is this. That wrong living in any sense or in any shape or form grieves the Holy Spirit of God in whom we are sealed until the day of redemption. And you know, there is an emphasis here upon the statement put in the original, Grieve not the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. That's how the apostle put it, the Spirit, yea, the Holy Spirit of God, in whom ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Very well, what is the teaching? The first thing, obviously, that we are taught here is the uh, Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Now, uh, the Apostle puts it in this uh, interesting and extraordinary manner in terms of sealing. I'm not going into that this morning because when we were dealing with the 13th verse of the first chapter, many of you present will recall that I preached five sermons on that whole matter of the sealing of the Spirit, so I cannot repeat it all again. I take it for granted that You are clear in your minds as to the meaning of the term, in whom or by whom ye are sealed until the day of redemption. You remember it means this, that the seal that God gives us of the fact that we are amongst the redeemed is the Holy Spirit himself. It, doesn't, it isn't a statement to the effect of what the Holy Spirit does to us. It is that God seals us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself is the seal. And he seals unto us the gift of salvation and all its concomitals. The apostle there, you remember, in that first chapter at once goes on to put it like that. Uh, he says, in whom, having believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. The apostle here in this verse we're looking at this morning is taking it for granted that they are mindful of what he's already told them, and that now he is simply making use of that argument in order to enforce and to apply this particular, these series of particular injunctions with regard to their ethical conduct and behavior. Very well, then, the important thing for us to hold in our minds is this, that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. That's the material point as regards the argument at this particular stage, that the Holy Spirit has been given to us, that he dwells within us. Now, no man is a Christian unless the Holy Spirit is in him, and if a man have not the Spirit of Christ, says Paul in Romans 8, 9, he is none of his. This is a great doctrine that runs right through the New Testament. We needn't go into it in particular. You notice that there in 1 Corinthians 3, which I read at the beginning, the apostle reminds us that the Holy Spirit dwells within the church as a body. The third chapter of 1 Corinthians uh, deals with it in the corporate sense. But you remember that at the end of chapter 6, in that same first epistle to the Corinthians, the apostle puts it like this. What? Know ye not that your body... He's now talking about the individual, not about the church as a body. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now that's the thing that the Apostle surely has in the forefront of his mind here in this 30th verse of this fourth chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. That the Holy Spirit dwells within us. That our bodies are the temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. Now then, let's see how he applies that argument and how he works it out. The first thing, the next thing, therefore, the second in my series, which the Apostle tells us is the astounding and amazing thing that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Now this, I say, is a most astounding statement. It's a most wonderful thing. And it sheds a flood of light upon the whole Christian doctrine of redemption. It does so, of course, in this way, that God is everlasting and eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is, I say, and is independent of everything. He exists in himself. He existed before time, before the world was. And God has no need of anything. God is independent of everything. There's a great theological term. I must use it because it expresses the very idea here. God is impassible by which is meant just this. That God is not only not dependent upon us and upon the world and all the things that happen in it, but in an ultimate sense is not affected by them at all. You and I are creatures that are constantly being affected by the things that happen round and about us. And that is why we give place to anger and to wrath and these various other things with which we have been dealing We are subject to them and we are affected by them. But God in and of himself is outside it all. And yet you notice that we are told here, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Now, how are these things reconciled? That's the question. Well, in an ultimate sense, we can't reconcile them. It's a great mystery that is beyond our understanding. But at any rate, we are entitled to say this that because of the way of salvation and redemption, and as a very part of it, God is, as it were, has stooped to our level. We see it in the incarnation of the Son, don't we? He took to him human nature, and therefore he knows about our ignorance and our weakness and our frailty. He knew what it was to hunger and to thirst and to be tired. He brought himself within that possibility. And here it seems to me we are told the same thing about the Holy Spirit. That for the purposes of redemption and of salvation, because he has come to reside and to dwell in us, it is possible for us to grieve him. Now, this is a kind of temporary condition, but it's a true one. In salvation, he has put himself into this relationship to us. That it is possible for us to hurt him to grieve him, to disappoint him. Now, the analogy that we must bear in our minds is obviously this, that our relationship to the Holy Spirit is a a relationship of love. And this is the very essence of the Christian doctrine of salvation. We finished with law. We are no longer under law, but we are under grace. And we must never think of ourselves in those old legal terms if a Christian sins, what he should be most conscious of is not so much that he has done that which is wrong or that he has even broken God's law. What should really trouble him is this, that he's offended against love. The very term grieve establishes this. Our relationship is now a personal one. And you know, my friends, it's because we forget this personal relationship. That we get most of our troubles and our problems in our Christian lives and experiences. We will persist in regarding the Holy Spirit as but an influence or as a kind of power. No, no, he's a person. You can't grieve an influence, you can only grieve a person. You can't hurt a power, you can only hurt a person. And these are the terms. He can be disappointed in us. Well, a principle can't be disappointed. It's only a person who can be disappointed. And here, I say, is the most vital and important thing for us ever to grasp. That we are in this relationship to the Holy Spirit. If we are Christians, he is within us. He dwells within us. Wherever we are, he is. And let us not forget this. Let us never forget his tenderness. Is he not represented in the scriptures as a dove? He descended upon our Lord at the baptism in Jordan in semblance of a dove. With all the tenderness of a dove, with all the capacity for being hurt and grieved and wounded, he came in semblance of a dove. And that is the spirit that dwells within us. He is in us. Our bodies are His very temple. Now, obviously, all this is only true of those who are believers, those who are Christians, because it is impossible for a non-Christian, and unbeliever to grieve the Spirit. He can resist Him, but He can't grieve Him. The only one who can grieve is the one who belongs to the family, is one who is in this personal relationship. Now you see what the apostle is teaching. This is the way to look at sanctification. Not simply in terms of particular actions or what happens to me and my experience and so on. No, no, let's forget all that as it were. And realize that he is in me and he's always with me. And that my every action is known to him. And it is possible for me to grieve him. To disappoint him. To sadden him. That's the meaning of this term, grieve. Very well then, that leads to our next point, which follows in its logical sequence, which is this. How then do we or may we grieve the Holy Spirit of God? And the answer is plain before us. Anything that we do which is not holy is grieving to him. Grieve not the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Now this must be interpreted in its fullest sense. Obviously the things the Apostle has been detailing grieve the Spirit. Anything I say which belongs to the flesh Grieves the spirit, takes the list he gives in Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh, he says, are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Those are the works of the flesh. And they grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Yes, but let's remember that we grieve him not only in actual deeds or practices. We've been reminded already that we can grieve him with our words. He's always with us. He hears everything we say. Let no evil communication proceed out of your mouth, therefore. He's grieved by it. And all these other things that he's going on to mention. Oh, but we must go a stage further. You can grieve him by your thoughts. He's in you, he is within you. How often has the devil tripped us all at this point? You say, But I didn't do that thing. No, no, I know you didn't do it, and you may not have done it because you're a coward but you thought it and you enjoyed it and you played with it in your imagination and you thought all was well because you hadn't done it. No, no. You've grieved him. An unworthy or an impure thought, a thought of anger, jealousy or envy, it grieves him, it hurts him as much as the action. Everything is known to him. The innermost recesses of your mind and heart and being. He knows it all. The world doesn't know it. Your own thoughts You know them, he knows them. And he's as grieved by unworthy thoughts as he is by unworthy words and by unworthy actions. But that's not the only way in which we grieve him. There is something which I think is even worse. (coughs) And that is our failure. To realize his presence within us. Our failure to honor him as we ought. Our failure to realize that he is ever always with us. Is there anything more insulting than that? Can another person insult you or hurt you more grievously than by just going on as if you were not there? By behaving and conducting himself or herself as if you were not in the room? Is there anything more humiliating? Well, Christian people, the Holy Spirit of God is in you. Do you always remember that? Do you honor him? To fail to do so, I say, is to grieve him. And then another way in which we do it, of course, is this, is our failure to respond to his promptings and his leadings and his influences and all that he does in us and to us and upon us in order to further the work of sanctification within us. The Holy Spirit has been given to apply the redemption that has been purchased and worked out for us by the blessed Son of God. And the Holy Spirit has been sent and given to us in order that all this may be applied, in order that it may be worked out within us. It is he that worketh in us both to will and to do, says Paul, of his good pleasure. That's what we are working out, what he works in. Well, now the Spirit is here constantly in doing that. The flesh lusteth against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. He is within us in order to do that. And of course, we are aware of this. He prompts us. He leads us. He creates desires within us. You suddenly find yourself desiring to read the word. That's the spirit. He suddenly will stimulate you perhaps to prayer or to meditation. He'll tell you to leave something and to do something. It's all the spirit. It's all a part of his great work of sanctification. Now I say not to respond, or to postpone, or to say, well, I can't do that now, I'm doing something else. Or to fail to give yourself and to be led by him. Oh, these are the ways in which we grieve him. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, says Paul to the Romans, they are the sons of God. Well, if you don't follow his leading, or if you try to thwart them, or if you try to postpone them, it's all grieving. Oh, go back, fall back upon the human analogy. The parent and the child, that's it. And you see how the Spirit can be grieved by any disinclination on our path, by any tendency to say, all right, I'll do it later on. To put him off, as it were. How grieving to the Spirit. That we shouldn't immediately respond and recognize his workings and be grateful to him for condescending to dwell within us and to be concerned about our sanctification. Well, there are some of them. There are many others, but I must hurry on. I'm anxious to complete this. There are some of the ways in which we do and can grieve the Spirit. But finally, why should we not grieve the Spirit? Why must we pay heed to this exhortation of the Apostle? Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. This is an appeal to both our hearts and to our understanding. They're both involved. It isn't only the heart, it's the understanding also. It isn't only the understanding, it is, as I've been emphasizing very much, the heart and the sensibilities. Why should we not grieve him? Well, I've already been answering the question in a sense. Because he is who and what he is. And that ought to be enough. He is the third person in the blessed Holy Trinity. And he is dwelling as a guest within your life, in your very body. As the hymn reminded us, a gracious, willing guest. You know the very greatness of the person ought to be enough for us. We all know what this is in practice, don't we? There are certain things we may normally do, but if we happen to have some particularly distinguished guest staying in the house, we don't do it. We feel instinctively we should be on our best behavior when we've got some honorable person with us. There are things we don't do, there are things we do. If there are little children in the house, they're told to keep quiet, not to make too much noise in the morning or at any other time, because so-and-so is staying here. Quite right. It's a mark of respect and of honor. Look at the trouble people take to read books of etiquette in order that they may behave properly in certain high social circles. Think of the punctiliousness with which people study the rules If they should have the privilege of being presented to the Queen in Buckingham Palace. Quite right. And yet in every one of us is the Holy Spirit of God. How careful you'd be of your speech in Buckingham Palace. You should be infinitely more careful of your speech wherever you are. Because of the guest that dwells within you. Your thoughts, your imagination, he's there. He knows about them. It's comparable to swearing in the presence of a saint or using unworthy language in the presence of some holy person. This is Christian sanctification. The realization that he is within us. Oh, not how can I get rid of this. No, no, think of him, my dear friend, and then you'll be all right if you only realized he was always with you and was aware of everything that passes within you. That's the thing that solves the problems. You don't want some magical experience. You just want to realize the truth which is given to you in this word of God. If we but realize that he's always within us, our whole conduct and department would be entirely different. But let me hurry to a second reason. Think of the base ingratitude that we are guilty of when we grieve him in any shape or form. Think of all that has been done for us. Think of the planning of God in eternity. Think of the subordination of the Son to the Father and of the Spirit to the Son and the Father. Here he is co equal, co eternal, the third person in the blessed Holy Trinity, and yet for your redemption and mine, he subordinated himself, and he's even condescended to dwell within you. It's base ingratitude not to realize his presence, and not always to do everything that is well pleasing in his sight. To grieve him, I say, is to be a cad. It's to be guilty of a base ingratitude for all he has done for us. And then let me go on and point out another. It is, as the apostle reminds us here, a complete failure to understand the final object of salvation. What is the final object of salvation? That my sins may be forgiven, that I may be happy all the day, and that I may get rid of all the problems in my life? No, no. They are incidentals. That's not the end and the object. What's the end and the object? Well, here it is. The day of redemption. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until. That's the end. Oh, these things, thank God for them. While we are passing through this world of time, but these are the temporaries. There's the grand thing. Well, what is it? Well, it's this. It is this day of the Lord that is coming. It is this day when Christ will come back and judge the world in righteousness and destroy his every enemy and remove every vestige of evil out of the whole cosmos and will usher in his everlasting kingdom. And you and I shall be in it. In glorified bodies, perfect and spotless, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, a part of this glorious Church, the Bride of Christ, with everything which is unworthy and evil removed, that's the end, the day of redemption, the coming in of the full and final and perfect salvation. The Apostle has really said it all at the fourth verse of the first chapter, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's the end of redemption and salvation. Not so much, I say, these particular things that may be true of us here and now, but that we may be holy and without blame before him in love in this world, but especially there, the day of redemption. A man, therefore, who grieves the Spirit... He's a man who clearly is not understanding as he ought the whole object and purpose of redemption. Why did Christ die on the cross? Was it simply that you might not go to hell? No, no. Put it positively, that you might go to glory? Don't look at the negative always. Don't always say, I'm delivered from this, that, or the other. Of course you are. But you're delivered for, prepared for. It's that which matters. Isn't it tragic that people will preach sanctification in these subjective personal terms instead of holding before us the vision of the day of redemption, the glory that awaits us, the perfection that we're being prepared for? That's the object of it all. Why, says Peter, putting in his own style and words the thing which the apostle says here, he says, "...he that lacketh these things..." is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, etc., says Peter in that second epistle, the first chapter. Why? Well, if you don't, he says, you're blind, you can't see afar off. But if you do these things, what will happen? You'll have an abundant entrance into that final state of the kingdom of God. The trouble, you see, in our lives is that we either don't know or don't believe or don't apply these Christian doctrines. And to grieve the Spirit is to display a final kind of ignorance at the very center about the whole object of redemption. But come, let me come down to our own level. Let me now be personal. I've given you the great things and they ought to be enough. But in order to encourage and to help, let me become personal and indeed, if you like, subjective. If you don't, want reasons on top of what I've given you, take these. For your own sake, as well, don't grieve the Spirit because if you grieve Him, it will inevitably lead to a loss of those gracious manifestations of His presence. Grieve Him and He'll withdraw Himself. I mean by that he'll withdraw the manifestations of himself. If you grieve the Spirit well, you won't have a sense of God's love to you. You won't have the joy of salvation. You won't have assurance. You won't have certainty. You won't have peace. You won't be able to say the Spirit beareth witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. All that is implied in the sealing. And if you grieve the Spirit, the evidences of your sealing will become faint. They may altogether disappear. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you're lost, but I'm saying that you'll, you'll miss and lose the comfort. The Christian is a man who is meant to know the joy of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice, says Paul to the Philippians. He's saying it here. The Christian is not a man who trudges his weary way through this world, moaning and bemoaning. No, no. When he looks in he sees nothing but sin and he does moan. But he mustn't merely look in. He must look out. He sees himself in Christ. And he should be filled with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. He should go singing as he marches to Zion. Children of the heavenly King, as he journeys, sweetly sing. Sing your Saviour's worthy praise. Glorious in his works and ways, but you won't be able to if you grieve the Spirit. All the tender visitations of his love and the intimations of his rejoicing in you, they'll be withdrawn. And you'll be left to yourself. And you'll lose all these wonderful experiences when he comes and embraces you and, and enfolds you in the arms of his love and lets you know that you belong to him. So for your own sake, grieve not the Spirit. But then let me add to that. If you grieve the Spirit and he withdraws his gracious influences, that means that he leaves you to the supremacy of the flesh. Do you know what I mean by that? Well, I mean this. If the Spirit withdraws his influences... You'll be left with all the power of the flesh within you and the devil on top of it, making use of them. He'll attack you, he'll assault you, he'll insinuate vile, foul, ugly thoughts and desires into your mind and heart. You'll feel you're living in hell and that hell is within you. And it's all because the Spirit is no longer, as it were, striving against the flesh in order to teach you a lesson you've grieved in. So if you are being subjected to most terrible temptations, examine yourself. It may be that in a sense you are being delivered over to Satan to correct you and to bring you to your senses and to lead you not to grieve the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God. And that brings me to my last reason, which is this. If you and I grieve the Spirit and he withdraws his manifestations, it will probably lead also to his strivings and his convictions within us. For a while we may not know even that. We may be just left to the assaults of the flesh and its power, but then the Spirit will come back. He's there the whole time. He's just withdrawn his gracious manifestations. And he will convict us. He will thunder out the law again. He'll make us feel we were never saved, that we are lost, that we are damned and reprobate. He'll do it. Why? Simply again to bring us back to where we ought to be. And if you don't want to know these mighty strivings and convictions of the Spirit within you, don't grieve him. Let's be clear about this doctrine. The Spirit never abandons the child of God. The seal is a seal. And the seal is no seal which can be broken at any moment and then put back again and broken again. No, no, you don't go in and out of salvation. You're not saved today and lost tomorrow and saved again. That's not the Bible. The seal is a seal and it's God's seal and no man can break it. So that when I say the Spirit withdraws himself, I don't mean he goes out of you. He still stays there. But the gracious manifestations are withheld. And then, because he is still in you, he will convict you. He will strike you down. He will prostrate you. He will make you feel helpless and hopeless. And then, when you feel that you are abandoned by him, he will again reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to you. As your Savior who died for you and who still loves you. And he'll wash away your sin again. And he'll smile upon you once more. And he'll restore unto you the joy of his salvation. But what fools we are ever to live in such a way as to lead to such experiences. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, my dear friend. He's in you. And he will have you, and he'll bring you to that glory and perfection. And if you won't be led by him, well, he'll chastise you. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Don't grieve him, my dear friend, I warn you, don't grieve him. For if you do, you will bring upon yourself grievous experiences and agonies of soul that you need never have had. Very well, then, what are we to do? Well, it's simply this, isn't it? Remember that he's always in you. Start your day by saying that. I'm a child of God, sake And therefore the Holy Spirit of God dwells within me. Wherever I may be, whatever I may have to do, whatever may happen to me, he will be with me. My every thought, word, and deed will be in his sight and in his presence. Oh, how I thank God for the privilege. How careful I shall be in nothing to grieve him or to disappoint him. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. Remember him. Remember what he's doing in you. Think of the glory for which he is preparing. And these things will become unthinkable. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.